That Printer of Udell's by Harold Bell Wright. Read by Amy Zuck on Anchor from Grandma's Bookshelf. Chapter 22 Whitley Plays a Losing Game. The sun was nearly three hours high above the western hilltops in the mountain district of Arkansas as a solitary horseman stopped in the shadow of the timber that fringed the edge of the deep ravine. It was evident from the man's dress that he was not a native of that region, and from the puzzled expression on his face as he looked anxiously about, it was clear that he had lost his way. Standing in the stirrups, he turned and glanced back over the bridle path along which he had come, and then peered carefully through the trees to the right and left. Then, with an impatient oath, he dropped to the saddle and sat staring straight ahead at a lone pine upon the top of a high hill a few miles away. "'That's the hill with the signal tree beyond Simpson's, all right,' he said. "'But how in thunder am I to get there? This path don't go any farther, that's sure.' and from the distant mountain he turned his gaze to the deep gulch that lay at his feet. Suddenly he leaned forward with another exclamation. He had caught sight of a log cabin in the bottom of the ravine, half hidden by the bushes and the low trees that grew upon the steep bank. Turning his horse, he rode slowly up and down for some distance, searching for an easy place to descend, coming back at last to the spot where he had first halted. It's no go, Salem, he said. We've got a slide for it and dismounting, he took the bridle rein in his hand and began to pick his way as best he could down the steep incline, while his forfeited companion reluctantly followed. After some twenty minutes of stumbling and swearing on the part of the man, and slipping and groaning on the part of the horse, they stood panting at the bottom. After a short rest, the man clambered into the saddle again, and fording a little mountain brook that laughed and sang and roared among the boulders, rode up to the clearing in which the cabin stood. "'Hello!' he shouted. There was no answer. And but for the thread of smoke that curled lazily from the mud and stick chimney, the place seemed deserted. "'Hello!' he called again. A gaunt hound came rushing from the underbrush beyond the house, and with its hair bristling in anger, howled his defiance and threatens. Again the horseman shouted, and this time the cabin door opened cautiously, and a dirty-faced urchin thrust forth a tousled head. "'Where's your father?' The head was withdrawn and a moment later put forth again. He's done gone to the corners. Well, can you tell me the way to Simpson's? I don't know how to get out of this infernal hole. Again the head disappeared for a few seconds, and then the door was thrown wide open, and a slovenly woman, with a snuff stick in one corner of her mouth, came out followed by four children. The youngest three clung to her skirts and stared with fearful eyes at the man on the horse, while well, he of the tousled head threw stones at the dog and commanded him, in a shrill voice, to shut up, dad burn, you kitty. Shut up. He's all right. Want to go to Simpson's on the corner, do you? said the woman. Well, you're right smart off in your road. I know that, replied the stranger impatiently. I've been hunting turkeys and lost my way. But can't I get to the corners from here? Sure you can. Just follow on down the branch. About three miles till you come out on the big road. It'll take you straight to the ford below a ball where the lone tree is. Simpson's about half a quarter on yon side of the creek. The man thanked her gruffly, turned on his horse, and started away. Bein's the fellow that stopped at Simpson's to hunt, she called after him. Yes, I'm the man, he answered. Good evening. And he rode into the bushes. 
Catching the oldest urchin by the arm, the woman gave him a vigorous cuff on the side of the head and then whispered a few words in his attentive ear. The lad started off down the opposite side of the ravine at a run, bending low and dodging here and there unseen by the stranger. The hunter pushed his way through the narrow valley as fast as he could go, for he had no time to spare if he would reach his stopping place before night, and he knew that there was a small chance of finding the way back after dark. But his course was so rough and obstructed by heavy undergrowth, fallen trees, and boulders, that his progress was slow, and the shadow of the mountain was over the trail while he was still a mile from the road at the end of the ravine. As he looked anxiously ahead, hoping every moment to see the broader valley where the road lay, he caught a glimpse of two men coming towards him, one behind the other, winding in and out through the low lumber. While still some t distance away, they turned sharply to the left and, as it seemed to him, rode straight into the side of the mountain and were lost to sight. Checking his horse, he waited for them to come into view again, and while he waited, wondered at their strange disappearance. The men urged their mules up a narrow gully that was so hidden by the undergrowth and fallen timber as to escape an eye untrained to the woods and hills. After riding a short distance, they dismounted, and leaving the animals, quickly scaled the steep sides of the little cut and came out on an open space about two hundred yards above the trail along which the solitary horsemen must pass. Dropping behind the trunk of a big tree that lay on the mountainside, uprooted by some gale and blackened by forest fires, they searched the valley below with the keen glance of those whose eyes are never dimmed by the printed page or city lights. Dressed in the rude garb of those to whom clothes are a necessity, not a means of display, tall and lean with hard muscles, tough sinews and cruel stony faces, they seemed a part of the wild life about them. And yet, withal, there was a touch of the mountain grandeur in their manner, and in the unconscious air of freedom and self-reliance, as there always is about everything that remains untouched by the conventionality of the weaker world of men. "'About time he showed up, ain't it, Jake?' said one as he carefully rested his rifle against the log and bit off a big piece of long green twist tobacco. "'It's a right smart piece to old Josh's shack, and the kid done come in a whoop,' replied the other, following his companion's example. "'He can't make much time down that branch on horseback, and with them fine clothes of his, but he oughter be for off.' Do you reckon he's a revenue sure, Jake? Dunno, best be safe, with an ugly scowl. Simpson lounges as he's just laying low himself, but you can't tell. What'd Sim say his name were? Jim Whitley, returned the other, taking a long, careful look up the valley. And where from? Sim say St. Louis or some other place like that. Shh, there comes. They half rose and, crouching behind the log, pushed the cocked rifles through the leaves of the little bush, covering the horseman below. "'If he's a revenue, he'll sure see the path to the still,' whispered the one called Jake. "'And if he turns to follow it into the cut, well, we'll shoot him. If he goes on down the branch, all right.' All unconscious of the rifles that wanted only the touch of an outlaw's finger to speak of his death, the stranger pushed on his way past the unseen danger point towards the end of the valley that where lay the road. The lean mountaineers looked at each other. Never seed it, said one, showing his yellow teeth in a merciless grin. And I done told Cap last night 
It was as plain as her main traveling road and ought to be covered. Maybe so, replied the other. And then again, he may be catched on and allows to fool us. The other sprang up with an oath. We uns ain't got no call to take chances, he growled. Best make sure. And with his rifle half raised, he looked anxiously along the trail. But the stranger had passed from view. A few minutes longer they waited and watched, discussing the situation, and then returned to the mules. They rode out of their little gully and on down the branch in the direction of the object of their suspicions. Just across the road from the mouth of the ravine down which the hunter had come was a little log cabin, and in the low doorway an old woman sat smoking a cob pipe. Howdy, Liz, said one of the men. Seed anything? Yep, returned the woman. He done as the way to Simpsons. Loud he been hunting turkeys and lost himself. I done told him he oughter get somebody to tramp round with him or he'd get killed. She laughed shrilly and the two men joined him with low guffaws. Reckon you're right, Liz, said one. Jake, why don't you hire out to him? Jake slapped his leg. By gum, he explained. That are a good eyed. I sure do it. And I'd see he don't find nothing bigger in a turkey, too. Lest he's too inquisitive, then I'll be, he finished with an evil grin. You all tell Cap, I've done gone to hunt with Mr. Whitley, if I don't show up. And beating his mule's vigs rigorously with his heels, he jogged away down the road, while his companions turned and rode back up the little valley. Jim Whitley... Enraged at Frank's failure to rescue the papers held by Dick, and alarmed at the latter's letter telling him of young Goodrich's confession, had come into the wild backwoods district to await developments. He was more determined now than ever to gain possession of the evidence of his crime, and in his heart was a fast-growing desire to silence, once and for all, the man whose steady purpose and integrity was such an obstacle in his life. But he could see no way to accomplish his purpose without great danger to himself. And with the memory of the gray eyes that looked so calmly along the shining revolvers that night in the printing office, was a wholesome respect for the determined character of the man who had coolly proposed to die with him if he did not grant his demands. He feared that should Dick find Amy and learn the truth, he would risk his own life rather than permit him to go unpunished. And so he resolved to bury himself in the mountains until chance should reveal a safe way out of the difficulty or time change the situation. The afternoon of the day following his adventure in the little valley, Whitley sat on the porch of the post office and store, kept by his host, telling his experience to a group of loafers. When the long mountaineer called Jake rode up to the blacksmith shop across the street, leaving his mule to be shod, the native joined the circle just in time to hear the latter part of Whitley's story. "'Looking for turkeys, were you, mister?' asked Jake, with a wink at the bystanders. "'Yes, have you seen any?' replied Jim. "'Sure, the brush is full of them, if and you know where to hunt.' The company grinned, and he continued. "'I seed signs this morning in the holler on the other side of Ball, where I were hunting my mule. "'And there's a big roost down by the spring back of my place in the bottoms.' Whitley was interested. "'Will you show, show me where they are?' he asked. "'Might, if I can spare the time,' replied Jake slowly. "'But I've got my crops to tend.' Another grin went the rounds. 
Jake sure pushed with his crops, replied another. Raises more corn or any. Three men in Arkansas, remarked another. And with this, they all fired a volley of tobacco juice at a tumble bug, rolling his ball in the dust nearby. Needless to say, the conversation resulted in Whitley's engaging the moonshiner for 75 cents a day to hunt with him, and for the next two weeks they were always together. All day long the native led the way over the hills and through the deep ravines and valleys, taking a different course each day, but always the chase led them away from the little ravine that opened on the big road. When Whitley suggested that they try the country where he had lost his way, his guide only laughed contemptuously. Ha! Ain't you killed turkey every trip? You just follow me and I'll sure find him for you. Ain't nothing over in that holler. I done tromped all over that huntin' that mule o' mine and ain't seen nary a sign. They's using round the other side, the south side of the ridge. You just let me take you round. And Jim was forced to admit that he was having good luck and no cause to complain of lack of sport, but he was growing tired of the hills and impatient to return to the city while he hated the man whom he feared. And his hatred grew hourly. Jake, seeing that his employer was growing fast tired of the hunt, and guessing shrewdly from his preoccupied manner that hunting was not the real object of his staying in the mountains, he became more and more suspicious. His careless good-natured ways and talk changed to a sudden silence, and he watched Whitley constantly. One morning, just at daybreak, as they were walking briskly along the big road on their way to a place where the guide said the game was to be found, Jake stopped suddenly and motioned Jim to be silent, stood in a listening attitude. Whitley followed his companion's example, but for a minute could hear nothing but the faint rustle of the dead leaves of a gray lizard darting to his hiding place and the shrill scream of a blue jay calling his sleepy mates to breakfast. Then the faint thud, thud, thud of a galloping horse came louder and louder through the morning mist. Evidently, someone was riding rapidly towards them. Whitley was about to speak when the other, with a fierce oath and a threatening gesture, stopped him. Get into the bush. Thou art quick and do as I tell you. Don't stop to pulver. Get and give me your gun. Too astonished to do anything else, Jim obeyed, and hastily thrusting the rifle under a pile of leaves by a log nearby, the moonshiner forced his companion before him through the underbrush to a big rock some distance from the road. The sound of the galloping horse came louder and louder. Stand there behind that rock, and if you stir, I'll kill ye, whispered Jake, and taking a position behind a tree where he could watch Jim as well as the road, he waited with rifle cocked and murder written in every line of his hard face. Nearer and nearer came the galloping horse. Whitley was fascinated and moved slightly so that he could peek over the rock. A low hiss from Jake fell on his ear like the warning hiss of a serpent, and half turning, he saw the rifle pointed full at him. He nodded his head and placed his finger under his lip to indicate that he understood, turned his face towards the road again, just as the horse and his rider came into view. The animal, though going freely, was covered with dust and dripping with sweat, which showed a creamy lather on his flanks, and where the bridle reins touched his neck. The rider wore a blue flannel shirt, open at the throat, corduroy trousers, tucked in long boots, and a black slouch hat, with the brim turned up in the front. At his belt hung two heavy revolvers, and across the saddle he held a Winchester, ready for instant use. He sat his horse easily, as one accustomed to much riding, 
but like the animal, he showed the strain of a hard race. Whitley was so wrought up that all these details impressed themselves upon his mind in an instant, and it seemed hours from the moment the horseman appeared until he was opposite the rock, though it could have been but a few seconds. The watcher caught a glimpse of the rider's face, square-jawed, keen-eyed, determined, alert, strained by the wind and weather. Crack! went the rifle behind Whitley. Like a flash, the weapon from the rider flew to his shoulder. Crack! And the bark flew from the tree within an inch of Jake's face. Whitley saw the spurs strike, and the rider leaned forward in his saddle to meet the spring of his horse. Crack! Jake's rifle spoke again. A mocking laugh came back from the road as the flying horseman passed from sight. Then, I'll see you later, came in ringing tones, and the thud, thud, thud of the galloping horse died away in the distance. The mountaineer delivered himself of a volley of oaths, while Whitley stood, quietly looking at him, his mind filled with strange thoughts. The man who could deliberately fire from ambush with intent to kill was the man for his purpose. Who is he? Jim asked at last, when the other stopped swearing long enough to fill his mouth with fresh tobacco. A revenue, and I done missed him clean. He began to curse again. He came near getting you, though, said the other, pointing to the mark of the horseman's bullet. Yes, it were Bill Davis. Ain't nary another man in the bull outfit could have done hit. He looked with admiration at the fresh scar on the tree. But what is he doing? asked Whitley. Jake looked at him with that ugly, mirthless grin. Maybe he's hunting turkey, too. Whitley laughed. I guess he's going too fast for that, he said. But his companion's reply changed his laughter to fear. Thar's them that better be follering him mighty sudden. What do you mean? I mean you, mister. The boys had their eye on you for some time. We know your hunting's all a blind. And now Bill Davis, he's come in. I ain't right sure myself. If I'd a kept mum and helped him take you. Whitley turned pale. Do you mean that the people here think that I'm a revenue agent looking for moonshiners? That's about it, mister. And they'll be for taking you out that night, sure. The fellow's meaning was too clear to be mistaken, and for some time Whitley remained silent. He was thinking hard. At last he said, Jake, I'll tell you something. The boys are mistaken. I'm not here to get anybody into trouble, but because I'm in a hole myself. As how? asked Jake, moving near and speaking in a lower tone. I won't tell you how unless you help me. And if you will, I'll pay you more money than you can make at this business in a thousand years. The moonshiner's eyes gleamed. Bill Davis is sure after us, and that thar means trouble every time, he said slowly. You heard him say how's he'd seen me again, and I never knew him to miss a four. He licked the bullet mark on the tree again. Tell you what, Mr. Whitley. I'll chance her. But we ain't got no time for talk now. We gotta get away from here, for some of the boys will be along pretty quick. We'll just mosey round for a spell and then go back to the quarters. I'll send the boys off on our hot chase and fix Sim so 
he can get away tonight. And you come to my shack. It's on the river below the hill with a lone tree at the top. Just seven miles from the corners. Can't miss it. I'll be there and have things fixed so we can lie out before the boys get back. They reached Simpsons in time for dinner, and Jake held a long, whispered conversation with that worthy while Jim sat on the porch after the meal. As Jake passed him on the way to the mule that stood hitched in front of the blacksmith shop as usual, he said, in the hearing of those near, It's all right for tomorrow, is it, Mr. Whitley? And we'll go over to the other side of Sandy Ridge. The words, all right, were accomplished by a wink that Whitley understood. Yes, he said carelessly, I'll be ready. I want to rest this afternoon and get a good night's sleep tonight. I'll be with you in the morning. Jake rode off, and all the rest of the day Whitley felt that he was the mark for many scowling glances, while many whispered words were passed between the gaunt natives as they slouched in and out of the post office. Later, when the loafers had seemingly disappeared, Simpson came and leaned carelessly down the door against the doorpost within a few feet of Whitley, said in a low voice, They's a watchin' you from the shop yonder. Be careful and don't let on. Your horse is town, tied in a little brush down the road piece. Ride easy for the first mile. Jim rose slowly to his feet and stretched his arms above his head, yawned noiselessly. Guess I'll turn in, he said. And then as he passed Simpson, he put a roll of bills into his hand. The landlord stepped out on the porch and took the chair Whitley had just left, while the gentleman slipped quietly out the back door and crept away to his horse. An hour later, Whitley knocked at the door of the cabin on the riverbank and was admitted by Jake. "'Did you make it all right?' the mountaineer asked as Jim entered. The other nodded. "'Simpson is sitting on the front porch, and I'm supposed to be in bed.' Jake chuckled. "'Cap and the boys?' Air way up the holler after Bill Davis, and I'm on the brush and they're watching you. Now let's get to business right sharp. Whitley soon told enough of his story, omitting names and places, to let his companion understand the situation. When he had finished, Jake took a long pull from the bottle, then said slowly, And you want me to put that feller what holds the papers out of your way? Whitley nodded. It'll pay you a lot better than shooting government agents, and not half the risk. What do you give me? You can name your own price. Doubtlaw's face glittered, and he answered in a hoarse whisper. I'll, I'll do it. What's his name? Where I'll find him? Richard Faulkner. He lives in Boyd City. Slowly, the man who had just agreed to commit murder for money rose to his feet and stepped backwards until half the width of the room was between them. The other, alarmed at the expression in his companion's face, rose also, and for several minutes the silence was only broken by the crackling of the burning wood in the fireplace and the chill chirp of a cricket and the plaintive call of a whippoorwill from without. Then with a look of superstitious awe and terror upon his thin face, the moonshiner gasped in a choking voice, Boyd City, Richard Faulkner. Mister, 
Ain't you mistaken? Say, are you right sure? Whitley replied with an oath. What's the matter with you? You look as though you've seen a ghost. The ignorant villain started and glanced over his shoulder to the dark corner of the cabin. There might be a haunt here, sure enough, he whispered hoarsely. Do you know where you are, mister? Then as Whitley remained silent, he continued. This here's the house where Dickie Faulkner was born, where his mammy died, and... And I'm Jake Tompkins. Me and his daddy were partners. Whitley was dazed. He looked around the room as though in a dream. Then slowly, he realized his situation, and a desperate resolve crept into his heart. Carefully, his hand moved beneath his coat until he felt the handle of a long knife while he edged closer to his companion. The other seemed not to notice and continued, as though talking to himself. Little Dickie Faulkner, him what fed me when I were starving, and given me his last nickel when he were hungry himself, and you want me to kill him? He drew a long, shuddering breath. <sighs> Mister, you sure made your big mistake this time. I'll fix it, though, cried Whitley and with an awful oath he leaped forward, the knife uplifted. But the keen eye of the man used to danger had seen his stealthy preparation, and his wrist was caught in a grasp of iron. The city-bred villain was no match for the mountain-trained companion, and the struggle was short. Keeping his hold upon Whitley's wrist, Jake threw his long right arm around his antagonist and drew him close in a crushing embrace. Then, while he looked straight into his victim's fearlit eyes, he slowly forced the uplifted hand down and back. Whitley struggled desperately, but his left arm was pinned to his side, and he was held, as it were, in a circle of steel. In vain he writhed and twisted, he was helpless in the powerful grasp of the mountaineer. Slowly the hand that held the knife was forced behind him. He screamed in pain. The glittering eyes that looked into his never wavered. Jake's right hand behind his back touched the knife, and Whitley saw that evil, mirthless grin come on the cruel face so close to his own. The grip on his wrist tightened. Slowly his arm was twisted until his fingers loosened the hold on the weapon, and the handle of the knife was transferred to the grasp of the man who held him. Then there was two quick, thru strong thrusts, a shuddering, choking cry, and the arms were loosened as the stricken man fell in a heap on the cabin floor, on the very spot where years before the dying mother had prayed, Oh, Lord, take care, Dick. You have killed me. I reckon, I reckon that's about it. Tell Falconer I lied. Amy is pure. And tell... <sighs> but the sentence was never finished.